essential truths that we need to go back and revisit from time to time. And so we try our best to integrate them into the calendar, get them to be part of the annual themes that we bring forward. One of those is the ancient art of self-awareness and self-disclosure. We uh, could use the word confession. However, that's been so distorted that we try not to use that. And we do that when we talk about conflict resolution on a regular basis. And then we talk about the contemplative practices uh, with regularity. We talk about centering prayer, and we talk about examine of consciousness, and we talk about money on a regular basis, and we talk about sexuality on a regular basis, and we talk about fear. These themes that we come back to, uh, these and a handful of other kind of essential truths that we need to develop into our understanding and practices that we need to develop into our lives. And one of those is gratitude. And we try and come back to this at least once a year. And this quote gets to the heart of why it is that we come back to this each year. Because I just discovered David Stendhal Rast. I didn't know who he was before uh, I found that quote. But then I went up and looked him up, and I've got to read some of his books. He says basically this. We must see that it is not happiness that makes us grateful, but it is gratefulness that makes us happy. It's not happiness that makes us grateful, but it's gratefulness that makes us happy. So when we're thinking through how life is lived well, the intentional stirring up of gratitude is something that we have to come back to on a regular basis. Because though we may hear that, give assent to it, believe it, there is something about the reminding process that is required for us that we need to come back to this on a regular basis. In the scripture, it says this, in all circumstances, be grateful. In all circumstances, be thankful. In everything, let yours be a heart of gratitude. For this is God's way. This is God's heart. This is God's desire. So today, I want to revisit a dimension of gratitude. I think I first talked about this 2008 or 2009 uh, I want to introduce you to an obscure Scottish theologian and lawyer. His name is Thomas Erskine. He lived about 300 years ago. He was born in the 1700s. He was born in Scotland. And Calvinism had become the dominant expression of Christianity in the area that he lived in the time he was alive. And as far as iterations of Christianity go, as iterations of faith in general go, Scottish Christianity during that time had become a rather rigid affair, quite stifling, quite exacting. Because of some key doctrines that were misunderstood and misinterpreted, uh, they had lost sight of the essential core truth that is at the epicenter of our faith, and that is this, God is good, we are safe. They'd lost sight of that. And having lost their way, Erskine began to write. Now, he'd been trained as a lawyer, and so he could write well, but more than his capacity for putting pen to paper, he had had a deep experience of divine life and divine love. And consequently, it was that experience that he brought to bear the ancient wisdom of our forebears to his generation who were wandering in that moment of darkness. So he countered in his writings the heavy-handedness of his day, and he wrote to challenge his generation. 
So to counter the challenges of his generation, he insisted that, yes, it's true, God can't be contained in any construct that we can create in our minds. Yes, we know that. That's the ineffability of God doctrine. We can't pin God down and say God is this way and God is that way. That is absolutely true. But when we experience the divine at its deepest, what we experience is love. When we come to the bedrock epicenter that is spiritual life, that bedrock foundation is love. God is love, God is love, God is love. And that truth changes everything. And above all other things, when we take that into ourselves and we make it ours, it changes everything. And so Erskine encouraged people to read and reread and re-reread the story of Jesus because it is, he said, the pinnacle of the expression of this wondrous love that we find in the divine. He had a term that uh, I picked up on. This is actually how I found Erskine years ago. And he said that by reading these stories, it excites gratitude in us. It excites gratitude in us because it awakens us to our high and holy worth. Excites gratitude, awakens us to our high and holy worth. When we see divine love, when we apprehend that that is the nature, when we, uh, the nature of things, when we walk down this spiritual journey and so that our eyes are opened, This is what happens to us. And when it does, we can't help but stand against the toxic ideas that creep into religion generation after generation after generation. It always happens. It always does. But the same thing is true of your body. Flu viruses float towards you every day. You carry them around in your body every day. But there is something inside of your body that takes those things, finds them, repels them, gets rid of them. And the same thing happens to the toxic religion ideas that creep in and always do creep in, usually something to do with a heavy-handed understanding. They are constantly rejected if we keep this immune system of our core understanding that at the bedrock of our tradition, God is love. When we hold to the reality that God is good and I am safe, the heavy-handedness tends to get expelled. But in Erskine's day... The church was losing its way. They'd gotten wrapped around the axle of this idea, but they were trying to figure out how to talk about the powerfulness of God. They had in their minds this image of God only as being. They couldn't see the other ways of imagining God that we've talked about, so they had this idea of God being a being out there somewhere, and they were trying to talk about the all-powerfulness of that being. And when they did, they came up with ideas like, God is not subject to the rules because power can't be subjected to rules. God must be the emanator of, the creator of the rules. So God doesn't follow the rules. God makes the rules. That has to be what all-powerful means. And so, when they were trying to get their minds around this idea, they concluded these kinds of thoughts. Well, if that's the case, that God is all-powerful, and if some folks are going to go to hell, because surely some folks are going to go to hell, then God must have made things so that they would happen this way, because anything less than all-powerfulness wouldn't work if God didn't make things the way that they have turned out to be. And so that's what they decided. They decided that God made the decision from the beginning that some people are going to go to hell. 
And instead of questioning their assumptions about the afterlife, instead of questioning their assumptions about their understanding of the nature of God, or instead of any of the things, many of which we've talked about together, they determined that God predestined that some people were going to eternally be in torment. And since God intended that, God intended for them to have eternal suffering and eternal torment, they began to live a frightened kind of spiritual life. Because that might be me. God might have intended that for me. God might have intended that for you. Well, probably you. (laughs) But so the basic premise was, be afraid, people. Be very afraid. Now, the subtext of their squabble had to do with a whole lot more than just this issue of predestination or how God could be all that powerful. The subtext had to do with what is the essential nature of the universe? Is this a good place that we live or is this a bad place? Is this a safe place or is this an unsafe place? Because if God could create some people so that they never had a chance, what else might God do? If this thing is set up so that some people are born for the express purpose of spending eternity in eternal torment, what else might God do? This is a very hard, hard world. And that's what the Scottish Christians were coming to. This is a hard, hard world, and they became some very hard, hard people. How could they not? If God created some people for the express purpose of damnation... How could they be anything but hard? They became a sour people, harsh and strict and an exacting bunch, those Scottish Calvinists. With those unspoken assumptions seeping into their souls, they really didn't have much choice. So, of course, they began to look for opportunities to condemn one another, look for opportunities to see in one another some sign that damnation was coming. They were afraid for themselves, and the way that people handle fear is to try and make themselves safe. And one of the ways that we make, them so, make ourselves safe is we put the other down so that we can feel better about ourselves. And of course they did that. How could they not? They were worried. They were stressed. They were afraid. And it was to this group of people that Erskine began to write. This group of people who were caught up in one of those pendulum swing times in history when religion goes to the toxic. This group of people who were suffering the consequences of bad thought and bad ideas. This group of people who were suffering this very brittle and this very harsh spiritual community together. It is to them that he wrote, and he wrote stories of Jesus. And he wrote about grace. And he wrote about divine love. And one of his more famous quotes, if you've ever heard of Erskine, you probably heard of him in the context of this quote. Religion is grace. Ethics is gratitude. Religion is grace. Ethics is gratitude. And it's in that context this morning that I want to talk about gratitude. When we distill religion down to its most essential form, Thomas Erskine is saying, At its most basic, it is this. When you discover the essence of the divine life, it is love. When you discover the moorings upon which reality rests, it is love. It is true what the pop artist said 50 years ago, love does make the world go around. It is something of a bedrock reality from which all things are determined. God is good and you are safe. 
And this is the deepest and realest of human experience to which religion points us. And this divine love, our tradition teaches us, isn't an affair that is based upon good behavior. It isn't something you earn by finding the right God. It isn't something that you earn by praying the right prayer. It isn't something that you earn by doing the right ritual. It is simply the reality of the way things are. It is the nature of the divine. As I've said many times, the book of John doesn't say that God loves you because if God loves you, he could decide one day to not love you. The book of John says God is love. God is love the way up is up. Up can't decide tomorrow to be down. Well, I guess it could, but bad example. <laughs> the idea is that this is a non-earned reality because the nature of God is consistently love. This is a non-deserved kind of affair. This is not a hard-won reality. It is not a merit-based reality. It's a depth of security that is rooted in something that is born of the nature of God, not of what you and I do or do not do. The scriptures sum up that whole thought in a single word, grace. This spiritual thing is not a merit-based thing. It's not a you deserve it, so come over and get what you deserve kind of thing at all. The grace is rooted in a God of love. The ancient texts tell us that God is that. So religion is grace. Religion and all the things we talk about when we put the four kinds of practices up on the wall, all the things we talk about when we say the two-step dance of the spiritual journey, which is desire and pay attention, desire and pay attention, all of that culminates in this fundamental reality that it is the discovery of something that is. It is not the earning of something that might be. It is simply awakening to a deepened reality to which so many of us have become blinded. God is love. That is grace. And that's religion. Religion is grace. Ethics, then, is simply our response to this deep realization. Ethics is doing good simply out of a heart of gratitude for the discovery of what is. It is a response to this world in which we have awakened, this spiritual life that has revealed to us these deeper dimensions of truth, this response to the always is love of God is the response of gratitude. Distilled to its essence, religion is love. It is the love of God. It is the love of people. It is love that comes to us. It is love that resides in us. And it it is love that flows from us. And ethics and morality and the life well lived is simply the gratitude that comes when we experience this depth of spiritual truth. Ethics and morality is simply an expression of our experience our response to the experience of divine goodness, divine life, divine love, truth, and beauty. Gratitude, Erskine is saying, is more than a feeling. Gratitude is something that flows out of this heart, this process. It is ethics. It is moral good living. 
Now, I hope you all took some time this Thanksgiving weekend to speak out words of things that you're grateful for. Many families have the tradition to go around the table and say something for which you have gratitude, and I hope you did that, because that's an important part of gratitude. It's an important way that we find happiness in our lives, as we read in that quote earlier, that when we stir ourselves to gratitude, we bring ourselves into a posture in which we can experience life's happiness. But... As important as that is, gratitude is somewhat bigger than the words that we stir ourselves to say. We express gratitude in the way that we live our lives. We express gratitude when we respond to this bedrock truth that God is good and I am safe. We express gratitude when we realize the blessings we have in our daily life and from that and from the gratitude that we have for that, we move into a life well-lived. Ethics is gratitude. Since we don't earn God's good graces, since the religion that is grace isn't something that we go out and get by our, our morality and our, behavior, and our good behaviors, since it's not ethics that earns us God's approval, then what are ethics and morality for? If they're not to keep us from the big slap down in heaven, in the sky, in the by and by, if that's not what they're for, what are they for? What are ethics and gratitude for? Well, they are a response. They are a response to an awakening to a deep truth for which we are grateful. The way that we treat people is a function of gratitude because we are grateful for the goodness of life and our response is to treat people well. The way that we do business with people is a function of our gratitude for having discovered that life is love And then out of that discovery and out of that experience, then we give ourselves in love. The way that we raise our children, the way that we think about, the way that we support our city's schools, the way that we think about and support our church community, the way that we think about and support our neighborhood, the way that we contribute our energies in the workplace and what we bring to our jobs, the morality that we bring to life, the ethics that we bring to our days, the giving that we bring to the circumstances of our lives, all of these ways in which we live life well, all of them are functions of gratitude. And so consequently, the heart that is blinded to gratitude often becomes blinded to morality. The heart that becomes blinded to gratitude often becomes blinded to ethics. Hands that have not been rooted in a heart of thankfulness often become unskilled at ethics. When we do not stir ourselves to gratitude, we find that our worlds become narrowed and that we become stingy and that we become selfish and we diminish life down to its lowest common denominator, which is me and my and mine. And here we are living that low, base, diminished, shrunken life, not realizing that the chain of events that brought us there started back when we did not awaken to the grace and the gratitude from which the spiritual life comes. So when the ancients taught us to stir our lives to gratitude, they taught us to see to see the reality that is bigger than the often negative one that we focus on. And they taught us not to wait for spontaneous outbursts of thankfulness to just flood upon us, but they taught us instead to stir ourselves up on purpose and say to ourselves, Self, I insist that you go out and look for 
the good until you see the good and then stir gratitude for that good. Self, I insist that you frame the world so that eventually you learn to see the world through grateful, thankful eyes. We always live on a spectrum within uh, any kind of society. There is, if we use the material possession spectrum, there are people who have a lot, people who have little, and people somewhere in the middle. And you find yourself there. And when you're there, you can find yourself wishing you had that or grateful that you have that. Same thing is true of the spiritual journey. People who have experienced this much of the spiritual journey, this much of the spiritual journey, and we find ourselves, and we could wish we had that or we could be grateful that we have that. And you can apply any spectrum that you have the, to a health dimension, or you can apply it to any kind of uh, criteria that you want to measure. There will always be some with more and always be some with less. And where do we put our attention and where do we put our focus? And the, the spiritual heritage has said, put your focus on the good that you have experienced, on the blessing that you have. And the chain of events that follow from there will be very good for you and the earth upon which we live. Bring our hearts to gratitude. Bring our hearts to gratitude is like taking vitamin C to help our connective tissues. It's like eating vegetables so that we get trace minerals to strengthen our immune system. We are enjoined by the ancient wisdom to be grateful because the lives that we live and the choices that we make will be informed by, will be determined by that action of having stirred ourselves to gratitude. Now, our own political leaders in our own nation were taught this when they were young, and consequently, we've got a, uh, a heritage that we celebrated this week. During his administration, Abraham Lincoln issued many orders calling people to specific days of gratitude. Several times, he ordered government offices closed because something had happened in this locality that needed a day of gratitude, and he said, this day we will just stir ourselves to thankfulness. And then in 1863, he made it a national and ongoing holiday. That's the week that we just finished. And he said this, we are prone to forget the blessings that we are afforded in life. We're, pr we're prone to forget. We're prone to forget the divine origins of blessings. We're, we're prone to forget the goodnesses that we have experienced. And so he wrote, with a single voice, may we, the whole American people, in every part of our country, even those at sea or sojourning in foreign lands, he said, may we set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving and praise. And I recommend, he continued, and this is the part that I wanted you to hear, while we are offering up our gratitude, let us also be penitent for our national disobedience. The Civil War was going on at that time. And I commend you to think of to pray for all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in this lamentable civil strife. Lincoln understood the same thing that Thomas Erskine did, the same thing that the writer of Thessalonians did, that ethics happens in the context of gratitude. Be grateful for divine blessings. Take time to stir yourselves up, yourselves up so that you don't forget the goodnesses of life. But then express that gratitude and express it by paying attention to widows and to orphans and to mourners and to those who suffer. Those very people that Jesus encouraged us to care for, the vulnerable, the hurting, 
the wounded, the needy. Hold them in your minds. Make care for them an expression of your thankfulness. Religion is grace. Ethics is gratitude. This is a weird Thanksgiving at the Hammock House. Haven was off in Panama City with her new husband at uh, her every other shared Thanksgiving with his family. Daniel's off in Columbia doing God knows what. Who knows what he's doing down there. The McGraths, who live five doors from us, we've shared uh, Thanksgiving with uh, since we moved into the neighborhood. They were part of the church, and we were. So for, what, 16 years, something like that, we've, uh, they're off to Boone because their son couldn't get off work. And so they were celebrating Thanksgiving up there. And, and then Terry and Nell have a dear friend who was uh, near death, and they thought for a long time they were going to be leaving. My mom was sick. All of a sudden, it was down to me, Denise, and Michael. And we typically have like 20 25 people in our house on Thanksgiving. And so with me, Denise, and Michael, then uh, we didn't know what we were going to do. Denise said, I'll tell you one thing we're not doing. I'm not cooking. (laughs) (laughs) So we were going to go on a trip, and then we were going to go to, uh, you know, Wilmington. We were going to go. We were going to do something, and then we made a reservation at the last minute so we would have a backup plan because we heard that reservations fill up for the places that uh, have restaurants and ended up that Terry and Nell did stay in town, and they didn't go. So then we uh, put our reservation for five, and we went out to eat. And there we were sitting around the table. And... We did something that was really important. It was actually easier, I think, with five than it was with 20. It's kind of hard with 20 people at the table. But we went around and we talked about what was our year and what in our year brought about gratitude. And the rule was you can't talk about family. Of course we're grateful for family. we just take that as a given. You've got to think about something that's non-familial that you've experienced in this year that brought gratitude. And I knew that I was going to ask that question. So in the shower early in the morning, I was already falling over my head. I spent the better part of the day thinking about that for which I was grateful. And I did find a shift that happened in my heart. I hope you do that. I hope you make that part of your life in some way where you're pushed to go through a day of thinking about the things for which you're grateful. Thanksgiving is a good time to do it, but we'll see in a moment. That's not... The only time. We do something else whenever we can grab Michael in these days. He's got a job now, so he works evenings, and so he's running around, and we're running around, and if ever we can find a time to sit at the table, we do what we used to do when the kids were young, and that is we would say, so tell, tell me about your high point today, and tell me about your low point, which is kind of a backdoor way of saying, let's stir gratitude up in our hearts. What was good of this day that we just got to live? And that's important. I don't want to underemphasize that. The talking about and the stirring ourselves to the thought processes of what, is, what are the blessings that we have experienced, this is important. But as valuable as that is, as valuable it is to speak out the words and to construct the thoughts toward gratitude, that is not the deepest way in which thankfulness is expressed. Thankfulness is most deeply expressed, according to the ancient wisdom, by doing something. By doing something for someone. It works out to be something that you say to another who needs comfort. Or what you do with your energies, or how you direct your monies, or way you give of your resources. It's something that you do after Thanksgiving Day is over. 
after the week of Thanksgiving has finished and that has been our focus, that is actually the time to begin thinking about giving ourselves in gratitude. Gratitude is best expressed by ethical, caring, loving, moral choices. So I encourage you in the aftermath of this holiday that we've just experienced to do what Mr. Lincoln said, to do what Thomas Erskine said, to do what the ancient scriptures say. Stir yourselves to not forget the blessings that life has afforded you. You get to be. Appreciate that. Savor that. Being versus not being. Being is better. You get to have some people in your life that are precious. And if they're close enough to you, you often forget that preciousness. Because my Lord, they get irritating. But they are precious. Savor that preciousness. And then act on the appreciations. Tell those people that they are precious. Write them. Call them. Stir yourself to appreciating the simple pleasures that life affords. A food that you really enjoy. A chair that's particularly comfortable. An evening routine that gives you a place of peace and quiet. Savor it. Appreciate the sounds that you hear. The wind that blows. The simple truths that you orient your life around. The simple beauties that come as we watch the seasons change. The the simple beauties of life make time to savor and to appreciate and to stir up gratitude. And then express that gratitude in a practical way. Out of the bounty that you come to see that you now experience. What could you give? Out of the bounty that you now come to realize is yours, what can you give to another? And do something to express that this week, this Advent season. Something thoughtful. Something that takes planning. Something that takes intent. Something that takes sacrifice, time, energy. If you've been at NRCC long enough, you've heard this, some iteration of this message enough times that you can actually begin to build this into a calendar. Make it part of your holiday celebration. That when the holidays come, you've got to get the Christmas lights, you've got to get the tree, you've got to do the shopping, and you've got to do an act of gratitude, an act of goodness and kindness, something specific, something that you plan So, because we do this each year, I would encourage you now to go ahead and close your eyes and take a moment and think of a person. Maybe it's an actual widow or orphan. More likely, it's a single mom or an unemployed friend or someone who is suffering or hurting or someone whose health is bad. And make a mental note of how it is that you could enact a kindness. Religion is grace. Ethics gratitude. Take a moment.
Now, hopefully, someone or some circumstance came to your mind in those few seconds. And I would encourage you to enact that, to do something today so that you don't let that forget. Because by the time you get to 3 o'clock this afternoon, 27 other things will be vying for your attention. But in addition to whatever specific thing that came to your mind, together we as a community are expressing gratitude through the ethical action of gathering food for the food bank. I would like to encourage you to make a special, a sacrificial gift to the food bank. Very few of us are hungry, and yet there are many for whom the food bank provides a significant meal each day. So I would encourage you to go out of your way on this one, to express your gratitude by being willingly inconvenienced, by spending money that you intended to spend somewhere else, by cutting coupons that you swore as God is your witness you would never do again simply so that you could maximize your buying power. When we do the food bank, we encourage each household to contribute 25 pounds. That just kind of gives us a frame of reference. You do that by getting about three pounds a week and then bringing it in each week. You can do it that way. But don't be limited by that. Figure out how to get more food for less money. And then get 100 pounds. Maybe get 200 pounds. Spend some real effort expressing your gratitude by doing good. Make an effort to care for the thousands in our county and in the counties that surround us who depend upon the food bank. This is the heart of gratitude. This is our religion. This is our ethics. This is our morality. So, Spirit of God, may we turn our gratitude into a tangible thing. May our actions reflect noble character, be realigned for gratitude, realigned with the kindness that comes from gratitude. May we be giving and caring and serving people. Now let me pause that prayer for just a moment, because I bet you're busy. And I bet a big swath of bandwidth will just get sucked out of your life starting as you move into this holiday season. Maybe somebody in your house is going to get sick Maybe there's going to be a lot of work responsibilities, maybe extra hours. There's a very good chance that you'll be with extended family during this time, and the anticipation of that will just suck up bandwidth. Maybe there will be hurt feelings or just the memory of hurt feelings. Maybe there'll be old fights and old wounds. Finances might get tight. Worries about finances might happen. And knowing that all that's going to happen, eyes wide open to all of that, my prayer for us is this that we would enter into this process, that we would intentionally stir up gratitude, that we would find tangible ways to express that gratitude with goodness. So, Spirit of God, may we be open-hearted, open-handed, generous people right in the midst of these busy times. May we be focused beyond ourselves right at the time our own anxieties vie for our focus and attention. May we be people who look beyond ourselves right at the moment when the time pressure and the money pressure and the people pressure makes us want to think primarily about the diminished reality of me and my and mine. Open-handed, open-hearted, Elevated vision, 
of seeing something beyond the mundane. May that be our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.